We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. For boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit winbet.com. That's W-H-N-N-Bet.com to start winning. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always by my co-host Nick Pilato. If my voice sounds a little bit nasally than usual, and I know I have a very nasally voice in general, or at least I've been told in the comments of our iTunes reviews, well, it's because I came down with a little head cold. The good news is I just tested negative for COVID, which is excellent because Thanksgiving is coming up. And I'm excited. I said no matter what, rain, flu, whatever it is, this is like my flu game because I wasn't going to miss the podcast with Mark Schofield, because this is my favorite one we do. We usually only get him in the offseason, but you know what? He granted us a little extra time this year to break down Daniel Jones at the midseason point for the New York Giants in year three. That's what this podcast is going to be all about, breaking down Daniel Jones on tape at the midseason point. Why I think it's so important to get Mark on is not just because I really value his expertise. If you've seen, I've tweeted a lot of his breakdowns that he does on Twitter, the three plays from each quarterback on film each week. And you guys can see the analysis there, but it's also because he he gets through a lot of quarterbacks, almost every quarterback in the league, I'm pretty sure. And his analysis is a little bit different or a lot different than me and Nick, because me and Nick don't have time to really watch the all 22 of a lot of these quarterbacks. We see one per week other than Daniel Jones, and that's the one facing the New York Giants. So this is great to get an outside perspective from someone who's actually taking the time to break down film on other quarterbacks. So without further ado, Mark, let everybody know where they can find your work, where they can follow you on Twitter and how you're doing today, man. I'm doing great. I'm, I'm happy for you, Dan, getting that little negative COVID test. That's always nice. Um, so you get to, you know, enjoy Thanksgiving with the family. Um, I'm excited to be here. I love coming on with you guys. I, I've enjoyed, you know, I listen to you guys from time to time, you know, and you guys do a great show together. You guys are a great team. It's been awesome watching this show grow. Um, and honestly, coming on for me is a joy because you guys have such a great, you know, listener base um that love the show that interact with you guys all the time so it's fun for me too so i'm excited to be here that's great mark and we obviously love to have you and we're going to start man with a really simple question on a scale of one to ten with decimals because we're a big decimal type of show here how has daniel jones looked to you this season i mean i i think the answer here is going to kind of guide this conversation he's been like uh say 6.2 since you guys like decimals and you know it hasn't all been bad you know, there are still things that I think Daniel Jones does well as a passer. Um, I, I've long maintained that his ability to push the ball downfield in the vertical passing game is a strength of his. And I, I would, you know, continue to maintain that the Giants, you know, should continue to try to construct the offense conceptually around the vertical passing game. You look at explosive pass plays, right? You know, that's sort of the name of the game in today's NFL. You know, throws over 20 yards, you know, 
plays that gain over 20 yards in terms of the passing game. It's 15 yards for runs. Giants have 24 of those by my chart, and a lot of those are vertical plays. There's a couple of catch-and-run moments, a couple of screens mixed in, but it's really just pushing the ball downfield, whereas some other teams might get those explosive plays a couple of different ways. They might come through screens. They might come through quick game stuff. They might come through the intermediate game. For New York, it's really the vertical stuff. And as I've talked with you guys before for on many shows, Jones seems most comfortable on those designs from a read basis, from a working through things with his eyes basis. And so I still maintain that look vertical passing is where he needs to be. He's been good against pressure. You know, you look at adjusted completion percentage. He's one of the three best in the league in pro football focus adjusted completion percentage when pressured. You know, Teddy Bridgewater is 79.8 on an adjusted completion percentage when pressured. Kyle, Kyler Murray, 77.3. Daniel Jones, 76.1. You know, he's had some splash plays when pressured, too, which I think has been good. You know, the problem is with, with Jones, there are still some things that he does with his eyes, or perhaps more accurately fails to do with his eyes, that get him into trouble. You look at the interception, two of the interceptions he had, both by Tyler Rapp in the Rams game, where it's just he's not moving people with his eyes. He's not seeing things. Like, the, the first one was a levels concept, and he stared it down. The second one, he just threw it right to him. You didn't even see him in that curl flat area. You look at an interception against the Chiefs where it's just a quick game concept, and the linebacker, Willie Gay, a second-year player, can just pick his pocket and read his eyes. And, you know, sometimes these are on shorter or quick, more quick game concepts, which, again, gets to the scheme fit with Daniel Jones, like I was just talking about. So overall, look, he's done some things well. There are things that he still needs to clean up, things that we've been talking about, the three of us, for a long time now. Um, I, I think he's kind of a middle-of-the-pack quarterback. If you want to talk tiers, he's probably, if you're tier one or the elites, your tier twos are the guys that could get there, and your tier three are like that big clump of guys that are like, you know, your average NFL starters that might have a good game here and there, might have a great game here and there, but could have a three-pick game another week. I think that's kind of where Jones fits in. You know, and ultimately that's what's going to determine the decisions that are made about him from a contractual standpoint going forward. Is this somebody you think you can bet on making the leap into that second tier? Or do you think he's going to be in tier three all the time? And if you think he's going to be tier in tier three all the time, is it still worthwhile to, you know, pick up his option, give him a contract extension of some kind, because you look around, maybe there aren't many better options out there. But that sounds a lot like that, you know, quarterback purgatory phrase we hear a lot where it's like, you know, this guy's good enough that you don't want to give up on him, but maybe he's not going to be good enough to get you to where you want to go. I would say that's the big question. And you brought up the the pressure rate. And I think that's interesting because Daniel Jones, before heading into week 10, was tied with Mac Jones for the most blitzed quarterback. And now I believe Lamar Jackson, after playing the Dolphins on Thursday Night right. Football. Because they just blessed them every snap, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's absolutely insane. But obviously defensive coordinators are looking at Daniel Jones and they're saying, we're going to blitz this guy. Why do you think that is? And you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but I kind of want you to maybe expound upon it a little bit more. Do you believe Daniel Jones has progressed in terms of handling the blitz this season? I think he's progressed somewhat, Nick. Um, you know, he, he's had the ability to make some splash plays when blitzed. He's had the ability to evade some pressure in the pocket with his footwork. He's a fairly athletic quarterback, so he does have that skill set. You know, but I, I think a lot of the blitzes that they're seeing might have more to do with the guys up front than, the, than Daniel Jones in the pocket. You know, it might be a situation where, you know, and I'm sure you guys have talked about it, some of the inconsistent play up front. Mm. If you can get a free rusher because of a breakdown up front, Odds are you're going to be able to either force a throwaway, force an incompletion, maybe you force an interception, or let's face it, Daniel Jones still has some fumble issues. You, you might get a strip sack kind of situation on Daniel Jones. So I think it's kind of a situation where defensive coordinators are looking at this Giants offensive line in front and thinking, look, we can do some stuff, you know, simulated pressures. We can do some mug looks and then drop rushers on the inside, drop those mug guys up front, come off the edges. We can get a free rusher at Jones and maybe create something that way. It's not so much that we think we're going to blitz Jones and he'll definitively be the guy to make a mistake. Maybe he will, but we also might get some mistakes up front. You know, you, you brought up Mac Jones and, and part of the reason you blitz rookie quarterbacks is, you really artificially speed them up from a mental standpoint. You force them to make a quick throw. And if you've got a well-constructed blitz package where you know where he's going to try to look hot and you've got somebody dropping there, you might be able to get a cheap, easy interception. I think with Daniel Jones, it's more of the, this offensive line has had some struggles. 
And maybe Jones drifts and fades and makes a big play. Maybe drip Jones like evades it and he gets us for a, a big play here and there. But more often than not, we'll be able to get that free rusher because of mistakes up front. And Jones is going to be a you know dead to rights in the pocket. He'll, ha- he'll have to throw it away. Or maybe if it's third and eight and he feels like he has to force a throw, you can get an interception that way. And I wanted to actually follow up with you, Mark, a little bit more on the blitz stuff because it's a lot that's been coming up with uh, our listeners lately. So my one question to you would be this. I think there might be a difference between Jones under pressure versus when he's blitzed because uh, uh, with this Giants offensive line, he's under pressure a lot. Sometimes that's just with four-man or three-man pass rushes. So as far as when he's actually blitzed, when they're sending extra rushers, to me at least it seems like there's been an issue with that since that Tampa Bay game plan last year where Todd Bowles infamously blitzed Jones more than any quarterback in any single game I felt like he was bad that was his worst game of his career and I still feel like I see I see a lot of issues with Jones as far as just where he's reading the hot routes and and there's an example in the in the Chiefs game uh that I thought was uh, to me a little glaring uh with Slayton on an underneath route and he kind of just looks in my mind he goes to the wrong read there like you said for young quarterbacks it's something to do to speed up their processing we've talked a lot about how we feel like Jones's processing is not yet there but this is year 3 now this isn't year 1 so how much can that improve uh, right now and how much do you think that's an issue of kind of the route combinations the offensive line like you mentioned where would you gate where would you kind of put Jones and all that I mean, look, when you start diving into the pressure numbers a little bit deeper and you look at specifically when he's blitzed, you know, his adjusted completions percentage drops to the middle of the pack. You know, it's like 73.1 according to PFF's chart, which is, I think, 10th in the league. Uh, He's got no touchdowns, two interceptions when blitzed. And when he's blitzed, like I just pulled up that play you're talking about. And yeah, there are moments when he specifically blitzed and the eyes might not go to where they need to be. And you're, like you said, Dan, this is year three. You would expect sort of a quarterback to have that stuff figured out. But the other aspect to it is this. Pressure, being pressured as a quarterback is very much like being a boxer and you're in the 12th round, but your body's worn down because of all the body shots that were landed on you in the first, second, and third rounds. You know, when you start getting hit a lot, when you start getting blitzed a lot, that's going to force quarterbacks to artificially speed up you know, what they're doing from a mental perspective in the pocket. That's going to force them to cut some drops short, speed up some drops. And then that gets you into a situation where you're ready to throw. You're supposed to be running a five-step drop from the gun or a three-step drop from the gun. And you've cut that five-step drop into a three-step drop. You hitch up. There's nowhere to go with the ball yet because the route construction is expecting you to have a little bit more time in your drop. So guys aren't breaking yet. And then you start hitching, you start hitching, and the play, could, the pocket falls around apart around you. Um, this, this is something you see when quarterbacks start to have that pressure build on them, have those hits start to pile up, and you can see examples of Jones doing that. I mean, I'm I'm looking at some plays from you know the Panthers game where he's sort of coming out of stuff quickly. He's cutting drops a little bit short because he's got pressure looks, and he's just throwing it quickly, and he can't get on the same page with the concept downfield because. He's cut himself short on a draw perspective. Now he has to wait for things to come open. Sometimes some plays I'm looking at, he feels like he can't wait, so he just throws it anyway, and then you're trying to fit something into a much tighter window. So there's certainly some fault to be put at his feet in terms of responding to blitzes and trying to fight that urge to speed yourself up. It's very difficult to do for a quarterback. I mean, think about it logically. You're standing back there. You've been hit 15 times already. you got another blitz look coming. You don't want to hold on to the football. Like, but unfortunately, that's the gig. That's the job. That's why we struggle to find 32 people that can do it well, because it is one of the hardest things in all of sports to do. I maintain that it's the hardest thing in all of sports to do, although people that obviously have tried to hit a baseball, myself included, might have some you know, argument on that one. But it's tough to do to sort of slow yourself down in the face of the blitz, to slow yourself down in the face of pressure. And there are moments when he struggled with it. Certainly, look, protections – you know, up front and getting things blocked up. Obviously that could be better as well. You look at some of the sacks that he's given up or that he's, he's taken. It's not on him. You know, there, there are free rushers. There are, you know, mistakes up front. Guys are losing one-on-ones up front. And when Jones is finally expected, look, they're bringing four. We've got six in protection. I should have this blocked up. I'm still getting hit. Like that's tough to deal with too. And so it's never as easy as, oh, it's always the quarterback or, oh, it's always the line or or it's always the concepts. There's a lot of blame to go around on these. 
but certainly Jones could help himself by not speeding himself up so much when he sees blitz and sort of making sure his eyes are right. He's working through reads. He's not cutting things short to throw off the timing of the concepts. That would certainly help. What's going on, everyone? Football is finally back, and there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find Giants tickets anymore because TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, is the original no-fee ticket site and the only one you'll ever need as you go to find NFL tickets. TickPick got rid of all those awful service fees that other ticket sites charge. Aren't those terrible? Which lets them guarantee the best prices on all of their NFL tickets. Don't believe it? If you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. That's a pretty good deal. If you just want to go check out the Giants, you know, pregame, hopefully they win a football game, then Please head on over to TickPick.com today to save $10 on your first order of Giants tickets. That's TickPick.com. Check it out, everyone. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's funny you mentioned that too, Mark, about how hard it is to play quarterback at a consistently high level at the NFL or at any level at, at the NFL level. Because I have infamously made a take on this podcast that I think no one, I, I'm still challenging anyone to find me a job where there's fewer people or who are good, actually good at what they do. Even you mentioned hitting a baseball. Well, there are a lot more good hitters than good quarterbacks out there right now yeah. in the MLB than is in the NFL. So to me, I still think it's one of the hardest jobs you can do. But I do want to bring up one thing because it's the it's kind of that second point for Giants fans. And it's, you know, one, how is he against the Blitz? Because this has been on my mind since Nick mentioned it a couple podcasts ago. Like, think about it. The good, the really good quarterbacks in the league, the Brady's, the people who win you Super Bowls. Teams don't blitz them. They don't blitz them because they can't blitz them because they make them pay. And Jones is really not anywhere near that level right now. But the other thing is kind of how much blame goes to this offensive line. Because as an offense right now, just looking at the brass facts of it, Jones ranks 25th in completion percentage, 25th in passing yards per game. This is courtesy of Dan Duggan. 25th in touchdown passes, 26th in yards per attempt, 24th in pass rating. Some of those I don't care as much, but 25th in DVOA and 23rd in EPA. Those I do care enough. Objectively speaking, he's been below average, without a doubt. So, you know, every Giants fan would say, you know what, throw out every number you see. Not every Giants fan. Some Giants fans are saying, throw out every single number. Don't doesn't matter what you say. This offensive line is so bad that it's not we have no way to ga- to gauge him as a quarterback. Since you've spent so much time evaluating quarterbacks, you know if that's true or that's a fair assessment or not. And do you think that's a fair assessment? Just say, you know what, throw it all out. He has such a bad offensive line, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, I, I still think that you have to evaluate the quarterback in the context of the situation, right? And so even if you're looking at a player struggling behind a bad offensive line, can he still overcome that? Can he still sort of fight that adversity and make plays happen even when he's, you know, facing all of this pressure in the pocket? Now, sure, he's getting pressured a ton. You look at team pass rush win rate, right? They're dead last in the league on ESPN's metric by that. So that's tough. Pass block win rate. As an offensive line, they're 28th in the league. So they, they're bad up front rushing the passer. They're bad up front protecting the passer. That's just one way to look at it, too. So the offensive line certainly is a factor. I think I think there are also some schematic elements as well. You watch that game against the Panthers. The Panthers are one of those teams. We're seeing more and more teams. Miami certainly on Thursday night where they'll have those double mug looks in the A-gaps where you walk both linebackers down. And now you've got to account 
potentially six rushers. So what a lot of teams are doing, you're seeing more of this in the NFL, and obviously it's taken from college and high school. They're taking the back. They're keeping them in protection, but they're using them in that sniffer alignment, right? So instead of having that back next to you in the shotgun five yards deep, you put them right behind the center of the guard in that A-gap in one of those a gaps. And so if one or both of those guys come center can fan one way, the back will pick up the other one. And you've got that blocked up initially. If you're asking that back to pick up one of those blitzing guys in the a gap to do it from depth, that's going to still impact the quarterback. There was a play in that Panthers game. It was a second and nine before halftime where you get that double a back look and they have the, they bring the tight end, they bring Rudolph into the backfield, but he's still three yards deep. And so when the, those two guys blitz in the interior, Rudolph tries to block from depth, can't quite get there in time. There's a big collision right in front of Jones, and he makes this throw drifting away that falls incomplete. You put him into that A-gap right away, he can pick that up. Jones feels a bit more protection. Now, look, if they both drop, then you've got Kyle Rudolph just handing out, doing nothing, but better to protect your quarterback given this offense right now. And so kind of a diversion there. But in terms of Jones, you still have to evaluate him in this situation, right? Because it's ultimately about, is he the guy that's, if he's the guy that you'll win games win, win games because of, you know, the sort of upper tier of quarterback play, they'll transcend that. They'll find ways to make it work. They'll, you know, move around in the pocket a little bit more. They'll make sure their eyes are right on the blitz. They won't speed themselves up in that moment. Now, if Jones is going to just be that guy you win games with, he'll have these struggles and teams might be able to scheme some stuff up. So that goes into the ultimate decision-making process about where do we value this guy? Can we still go forward with him or are we going to go in a different direction? So I think, yes, it's it's important context that this offensive line has struggled, that this offensive line by a number of different metrics has struggled. And you can see it on the film where there are moments when there are free rushers, there are blitzers, but at the same time, the quarterback has to be better in those moments than you'd expect to try to transcend those moments, even the face in the face of that adversity. That's what you want from your quarterback. You want ultimately your quarterback to see a potential blitz and smile before the snap, because that's the opportunity to get an easy one, right? That's the opportunity you get zero blitz look or a six man pressure scheme. And it's pure cover one or whatever drift fade, throw a touchdown, go celebrate with your boys. Like that's what you should be hoping for, for a quarterback. You want to get blitzed. Now, that's the weird thing about playing this position is it's an opportunity for a big one. It's an opportunity for an easy one. You know, it's an opportunity to make your heart rate throw and and get the ball out of your hands before you're getting hit. Um, but if you're in a, suddenly in a situation as an offense where the blitzes are getting home, you're speeding yourself up in the pocket, you're making mistakes in the face of the blitz, teams are going to do it until you prove that you can beat that. You're going to see more of it. And if you're going to continue to struggle, that's a big decision for an organization. I really love that, man. Smile in the face of the blitz. It's something that we all want Daniel Jones to do. And another area of the field that Dan and I want Daniel Jones to smile is the red zone. And this is the second year in a row in Jason Garrett's system. And Jones has a scary low touchdown percentage. I mean, go back to his rookie season with Shermer. He had a touchdown percentage of 5.2%. Last year it was 2.5. This year it's 2.7. Normal quarterbacks typically have a touchdown percentage around 4.5-ish for context. So this lack of touchdowns, do you think this is attributed to the offense's inability to create explosive plays? I mean, I, I believe partially it's that. But then there's the inefficiency in the red zone. It obviously doesn't help. In your opinion, how do the Giants fix this red zone offense? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly tough. I mean, obviously, you you know, you think about it in the realm of sort of quarterback evaluation generally. Like when I'm studying draft quarterbacks, when I'm studying NFL quarterbacks, I look at third quarter, fourth quarter, third down, and red zone. I mean, I think those are sort of your, your money down, your money situations when you want to be able to execute. And I think, you know, there are some reasons where this offense might have some failings in the red zone. It's a protection thing at times. You know, you look at they were down in the red zone early against the Raiders, actually, I guess late second quarter. And you're going vertical stuff, which you would think meshes well with Daniel Jones, but you don't get the time to get it executed. You get a sack from Yannick Ngakwe. I mean, when you still can't execute down in that area of the field, that's going to be some problems. I think also, you know, I've seen some other teams struggle with red zone stuff just because the field gets tougher to operate in. You know, from a quarterback's perspective, you've got extra defenders now. You've got, you know, the sidelines coming to play a little bit more. You know, they get the end line to contend with when you're trying to throw outbreaking routes, when you're trying to throw, say, corner routes in the back corner of the end zone. You've got those two extra defenders to sort of deal with. So I think those are some problems sort of down in the red zone. 
that might, you know, pose some problems for this offense. They've tried some things. You know, they've, they've tried some different things. I love the sort of four by one smoke screen to Shepard against the Chiefs. I thought that was a nice little look from Jason Garrett. So it's clear that they're trying some different things to get these drives finished with touchdowns. But the problem is if you start seeing an offense where first and goal from the six feels like just three points, that's all you're going to get, you know, that's a problem. I saw that with the Patriots for a couple of years, Brady's last season, Cam Newton last year. It seemed like they didn't have an answer for what to do when you get down in there. And of course there are some offensive line woes to think about here, because if you can't just run it in, if you can't win one-on-ones and just, you know, run halfback power inside zone or duo and punch the ball in that way, you know, you're going to have struggles down in the red zone when the yards are a little bit tougher to come by. And so it's just simple, sort of emblematic of the entire struggles right now offensively. It's that, you know, sometimes you can't get things blocked up. Sometimes when you get things blocked up, guys aren't breaking open. Sometimes when you get things blocked up, guys aren't breaking open. Jones is a bit late with his eyes or a bit late with his reads. And, you know, when you, when you have to get everything right in order to be successful, that's sometimes tough in the NFL. Yeah, without a doubt, Mark. And I had a follow-up on the red zone, but you kind of touched on it a lot there. So I'm going to pass it to Nick. I do want to – actually, before I do that, I do want to say one thing about the red zone stuff because I am curious. You, you mentioned uh, sometimes Jones is late with his eyes. I've actually seen that a good amount in the red zone since he's become the quarterback of the New York Giants. We saw it on a big play last year versus the Bucks. Obviously, we saw it pretty much, in my mind, on most of the red zone series this year. Now, some of these were, like you said, just really bad designs. I mean, they're – Garrett has run a lot of red zone fades, which obviously, you know, you ask anyone who does this for a living, who analyzes for a living, I'm sure you'd confirm this, Mark. Throwing fades in the red zone is really not a good way to score points. But, you know, I think part of it is Jones. And I'm I'm, I'm just wondering, in your mind, does he have the process, the combination of processing and arm talent to be really acceptable in the red zone? Not, not even just good, but just acceptable to the level you can win with because... The, the fair objective way to look at it is he really hasn't been through three seasons in his career. And it is really tough in the red zone. You broke down exactly why. I mean, there's a, it's a short space. It's a short field. The safeties can play up. Everything's condensed. But you really need that next level combination of arm talent and processing. Do you feel like and fast eyes? Do you feel like Jones can get to there at some point? I mean, I think he can get to there at some point. But like you guys said earlier, it's year three. You know, we've been waiting for him to get to there for a while now. And, you know, you mentioned red zone fades. I mean, when you're running red zone fades to Kyle Rudolph against the Chiefs and he's working against the corner, <laughs> I mean, I'm not so sure that's the right play call in that moment. And, yeah, if you've got a ball winner, if you've got a Julio Jones type, yeah, you could run red zone fades and it might work. But, you know, when you're digging to that portion of the playbook, you know where you are sort of conceptually, you know, they did some other stuff against, against the chiefs down in the red zone where it was go flat and things like that, where, you know, that's a nice comment. That's a nice concept when you're in the middle of the field, sort of the 40 to the 40 or the 20 to the 20, but down in the red zone, that's really tough. Cause getting to the point about the process of speed, it, everything has to happen much faster. I mean, I remember my coach, um, my offensive quarterback, my freshman year in college, Craig Ray uh, passed away two summers ago. Brilliant guy. Absolutely loved him. And he talked about down in the red zone, you have to be twice as fast to be half as good, you know? And I don't know if that phrase actually makes that much sense, but I think the point he was trying to make is down in the red zone, the field is, it's constricted. You know, safeties aren't playing 20 yards off now. They're playing right down on the goal line. Maybe they're eight yards off at most. They, they aren't playing from depth. They can be faster on things. The windows will close in the blink of an eye. And so if you're just average with your eyes, if you're, if you're just sort of working through reads at a regular pace, you're going to be late down in the red zone. And for Jones specifically, like he has to speed up his eyes on a lot of the quick concepts. A lot of the interceptions, like I talked about earlier, they come on short and intermediate concepts where it's almost sometimes like he's not even slow with his eyes. He's just slow getting the eyes there and then getting it out. Like he knows where he wants to go. The interception against the Chiefs with Willie Gay, it's just a slant route. Like he knows where he wants to go with it. He just – Get it and go. Like he's playing at half speed, particularly down in the red zone. You can't play at half speed. So his eyes have to get better. I think his arm is good, but if your arm is just good, you have to be incredibly fast with your eyes. Like if he had a Josh Allen type arm, then the fact that he's a little bit slower with his eyes and with his reads down in the red zone, the arm strength, the velocity would make up that difference. You know, with Jones, he doesn't have that kind of arm. So the eyes of the mind have to be quicker to make up that little difference. And you might think half a second, that's a huge amount of time in the NFL, especially down in the red zone. You know, that's one step. 
That's one step for an NFL safety driving on a route. That's one step for an NFL corner driving on a route. And down to the red zone, that might be all you need. And so, yeah, he has to get faster with his eyes and his reads. You know, if he dial up a little bit more velocity, that would be good too. Can he get there? Yeah, he can. But how long is the organization willing to wait? That's the big question. So I want to transition a little bit, though, to the Jason Garrett system. And we'll get back to Daniel Jones, but we see a lot in the system, slant flat, stick flat, double slants, double curls, three by one pivot. It's clear out, you know, levels concepts. We saw a nice Mills concept that was hit big or could have hit big to Darius Slayton earlier in the season, but it's pretty generic. He's not reinventing the wheel. So Mark, in your opinion, how can Garrett open the offense up a little bit more? And do you think these offensive line woes that we've covered a decent amount forces him to be even more conservative than he traditionally is? Yeah, Nick, I kind of think it's that. I mean, you know, if you want to get sort of more creative in the downfield passing game, do some of the very – like every team's running post over Yankee. Every team's doing that. I, I fire up the film first and Monday morning. Every team I watch, they've got some version of that. But I love some of the variations we're seeing now where you've got – instead of post over, it's post with a curl route with a guy sitting up in the middle of the field. And the curl route, curl flat or both run back, those are sort of quicker game concepts. The Jones runs really well. Uh, like some of his better throws in the sort of West Coast system come on those curl routes where you got the mirrored curl flat, which Garrett likes to call for him. They also love that both run back where it's more of a max protection. You get two guys pushing vertically, but then they come back towards him. And Shanahan calls it both run back. They've run that with Jones, and he's run that concept well. Um, but some of the quicker game stuff that gets us into the process and things with Jones we just talked about. But I do think that generally speaking – if there's an idea or a belief that they could get more exotic in the downfield passing game, there's also a concern that it's not going to get blocked up, which forces you to go more max protection stuff, which is why you might see some of those both run back designs and some of the other designs where they really just go max protection. And then they'll give you that Mills look, like you mentioned that play to Slayton um, that could dialed up perfectly. You can still do some stuff in the downfield passing game off of max protection, obviously, but the numbers advantage is such a disadvantage for the offense where it's either there, you gut it, or there's nowhere to go with the football. And if you've gone max protection, you know, maybe the back release is late, but that's probably going to be covered up too if it's covered well downfield. And so you would like to see Garrett get a little bit more creative. You know, I'd like to see him find more ways to get Tony involved. Uh, I'm working on something that, you know, in that realm right now. You know, I think there are ways to get him the ball in space, get him the ball quickly. You know, some of the four by one stuff that you're seeing other teams use, you know, there's an opportunity to get him as one of those four, um, some throws and some quick throws in space with guys in front of him to block for him. You know, you go with that four by one stuff, but you've got the one-on-one matchup to the backside that you can take advantage of. And so there are other things that I think they could do conceptually, but it comes down to, can you get it blocked up in time? You know, can you get Jones enough time to hit those things? Or is it all going to have to be like, even if you go four by one, it's going to have to still be quick game stuff because you're worried about Jones not having enough time to hit on throws downfield. Yeah, that's fair, Mark. I think part of it, you know, it all works together with Jones and with this offense, but I don't want to harp all on the bad here. I do want to talk about some areas I think Jones has improved on. One area I actually feel like he has improved on as far as where he was at to where he is now is his pocket presence and awareness. This year, it feels to me like he's sensing the pressure a little bit earlier and making the decision quicker to move off his spot. Is this something you've noticed at all with Jones? Or you still think there's a long way to go there? No, I do think, Dan, that that's an area where he has improved. Now, you know, it's a fine line between, you know, moving in the pocket well and feeling pressure and panicking and cutting stuff short because you're getting blitzed, that conversation we were having earlier. And I think that this is, a, a line that Al, uh, that Jones is going to have to walk here. You know, he's going to have to continue to remain calm in the cauldron. You know, when you feel pressure move around, the subtle pocket movement, not the violent pocket movement where you pull it down and bail. You know, take Jalen Hurts, for example. Uh, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, you know, he'd get blistered, he'd get pressured, or he would just perceive pressure, and he's pulling the foot out football down and he's bailing and he's running around and he's trying to make something happen. You know, then you see him against Denver this week and you can see a play where he hits Goddard on the bender and the three by one, four verticals concept where he starts to pull the ball down because he sees that lane to his left. And then he just resets and makes the throw. You know, you can see a quarterback, a young quarterback work through that fight or flight moment. And for Daniel Jones, he's done a good job 
he sort of like stayed and fight it in the pocket, but he still has to walk that fine line between, okay, I can slide here. I can click and climb here. I can shuffle my feet here all while keeping my eyes downfield and make a throw, but that's good. But cutting the drop short, speeding yourself up, make it a quick throw because you feel pressure. Like that's not where you want him to be. So he's done a good job at getting to where you want him to be. Now you just need to see him do a lot more of that. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. I, I mean, that's exactly how I see it. Mark, he's improved in this regard, but there's still a long way to go. I know. Watched a lot of Josh Allen early in his career, and we see him play at times now. He's at an MVP level, and there were a lot of people linking Daniel Jones year two to year three jump to Josh Allen. And Dan and I, we weren't really all about that because we don't believe Daniel Jones has the physical capabilities that Josh Allen presents on any given Sunday, but what improved about Josh Allen's game from year two into year three that put him into the MVP conversation? And do you think Daniel Jones can build himself up to be possibly a top 10 type of quarterback? Is it just a physical from Josh Allen or was there something else that, that he has shown you on film? What really stood about Allen from year two to year three, and you could see the foundational underpinnings of it in year two, he became an anticipation thrower, which mm. If you would have told me, you know, back in the run up to the 2018 draft that, yeah, in year two of his career, Josh Allen is going to be making some anticipation throws. I would have said you were absolutely crazy. I would have said it was another Josh Allen. It was the Josh Allen. They turned the pass rush and Josh Allen into a quarterback because there's no way the guy I'm seeing at Wyoming is going to be making anticipation throws. But he started doing it. He started doing it even when year two wasn't ultimately a successful year overall for him. You could see him starting to take that step. And for, for Allen, what was interesting about it was because of that arm, his rookie season, it was a blessed and a curse. Like he would see a concept, wait to make sure of it because he, he knew he could still get it there on time because of his arm, but that wouldn't always work out for him. So I was my fear with Josh Allen was that he would never become that anticipatory thrower because he continued to just use his right arm as a crutch. But year two, you saw him start to make some anticipation throws. And yeah, easy ones like, you know, throwing the out route with anticipation against off coverage or throwing the curl, the comeback, you know, with anticipation against semi off coverage or even some tight coverage. But, you know, those are kind of routes that you can throw with anticipation pretty easily. But in year three, you started seeing anticipation throws of the throwing guys open variety, throw it into the, say that secondary window, right? You throw in that dig route. You get that first window between the numbers and the, the hash mark. Sometimes that's a tougher throw. So you just give it that extra beat and throw into that secondary window when he clears that underneath linebacker. And it's more towards the middle of the field. That's the kind of stuff that Allen wasn't doing at Wyoming. That's the kind of stuff that he wasn't doing in year two, but he's, he was doing it in year three, doing it against some, you know, zone coverage looks, which gave him some trouble. They had a stretch in the middle of the season, you know, Kansas City, Tennessee, where they saw a lot more zone coverage and he struggled against it. But then that San Francisco game, the Denver game, the, the New England game, where he just tore those teams up against zone coverage looks, he was hitting those secondary windows with anticipation. So that was kind of the Allen jump. Can Jones get there? Again, like, I think he can. And there are moments when, and we talked about there were some throws last year, there were some throws this year where some anticipatory throws in the middle of the field. Like, there are flashes of it. There are moments of it. But, I, you know, Jones, I think, is still much more comfortable seeing it and throwing it, you know. And it's another tough trait to learn at the quarterback position that takes some time to work through. But, you know, I tell the story all the time, you know, when Ben Roethlisberger was dinged up, Back when he, you know, when Antonio Brown was with the Steelers and Landry Jones had to start, it was a Patriots Pats game and Nance and it was Sims at the time who were in the booth were talking to Antonio Brown about what, you know, what is it like playing with a younger quarterback? And Brown told those guys that I talked to Landry Jones this week and if I I told him, look, if I see you throw it, it's too late. You know, if I see you throw it, it is much too late in the NFL. That's the issue with anticipatory throws. If the receiver sees the ball come out on that dig route over the middle, it's too late. Uh, you've got to make that throw into that window, anticipating that window coming open and putting the football where it needs to be for when the receiver coming out of his break. So it's an area where, J where Jones has shown some flashes, but it needs to be a, a done at a much more consistent basis for me to you know start thinking about, oh, year three leap, year four leap, something like that. That's a great point, Mark, because I feel exactly the same way. It's like a lot of the things with Jones that I want to see. There's flashes of it, 
You see it sometimes, but are we seeing it enough? Anticipatory throwing is one of the most important things you need from a quarterback. And we're not, I don't feel like we're seeing it enough. And one other thing I wanted to ask you about, which I personally don't feel like I'm seeing enough. I brought it up to Nick on a recent podcast, but I want to get your take about it because you see so many more quarterbacks from us. And again, it's not probably at the same level of anticipatory throwing for me because that's like top, top, top things you want to see. But Tight window throws, for example. I believe these are kind of the difference between some of these championship quarterbacks and the one that fall and the ones that fall short. I mean, Eli had plenty of these during his 2011 Super Bowl run. I test wise, I don't seem I don't see too many of these tight window throws on Jones's 2021 tape or his 2020 tape. Again, there are flashes of it. He had a really nice one uh, in his last game against the Raiders at Galladay on a 14 yard route. We kind of threw it between three guys. But my question for you is kind of two parts, Mark. One, do you see other QBs making these more often, I guess, than Jones? And two, do you think that Jones isn't making them in part because of Garrett? Because Garrett did come in here and say, the first thing I want to do is coach out the turnovers. That's goal number one. So just curious your take on those two things. Yeah, I mean, the goal of an offensive coordinator is to avoid tight window throws, right? Like you want to scheme up plays where that primary read is going to be open and it's going to be wide open by NFL standards, which might mean like, you know, two yards of separation, three yards of separation. So not necessarily a tight window throw, but, you know, NFL open. The the thing with other quarterbacks sort of around the league is that some guys are willing to make those tighter window throws or some guys are more willing to make those than others. And if you've had a history of turnovers and if you've been instructed from the top on down to avoid turnovers, you might then start to avoid those tight windows. You know, and I think there is an element to that with Jones where he might look at a route that is NFL open, so to speak, but come off of it because he doesn't want to force that turnover. He doesn't want to force that into that window. And the problem with that is, at least from where I sit and the way I feel about it is, you can't play this position scared. Like you can't play quarterback worried about failure, worried about turnovers because they're going to happen. But if you're at such a point where you're afraid of throwing a post route against single high coverage down in the red zone, because you're worried about that free safety, but that's your primary read. And you decide, look, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to check the ball down. You might keep your job for a while, but if you avoid making the throws because you're afraid you're going to lose your job, you're not going to make the throws that would enable you to keep your job or to, to do your job well. And so I always look, if a quarterback makes it a, an appropriately aggressive decision and challenges a tight window, I appreciate that. I think that's what you're supposed to do. Now, obviously, there are situations to it. If it's first and goal, you know, you don't necessarily need to force it. But if it's third and goal late and you need a touchdown, yeah, you better let that rip. And so I always reward sort of a, appropriately aggressive decisions. I, I think Jones needs to make some more of those. The, will there be mistakes? Yeah, sure. But there will also be plays that you convert. Now, in terms of how do you convert those, I think ball placement plays a big role. You look at some of the tighter window throws that Daniel Jones has had. I mean, I just pulled up a bunch of his dig route throws, for example, while we were talking. And on some of those dig routes against man coverage, the ball's to the backside hip, backside shoulder, which allows that cornerback in male, in trail technique, man coverage, to make a play on the ball. They opened the second half against Carolina with one such throw, and it's to the back shoulder, and it gets broken up. So he can challenge those windows. I'd like to see him do more of it, but he's got to put the ball where it needs to be when he does it. This gets us to the placement, the velocity, and things like that. Ultimately, young quarterbacks, as they adapt to life in the NFL, they have to be able to throw against the defender's leverage. Like I used to be so dogmatic, guys, about, oh, they need to tell me the difference between stubby or stump. They need to tell me, oh, pre-snap it looks like cover four, but now it's cover three. They have to read all that stuff out. They have to know what they're – find the open receiver by NFL standards – put the ball where it needs to be like we can fill in the other stuff as we go, but you have to start from there. And Jones sometimes struggles with that, putting the ball where it needs to be against tight coverage. So maybe that plays into his decisions to shy away from these windows, but you can't be afraid. Like you got to let these throws rip at times and might there be turnovers? Yeah. But guys, you're three and six, like you got to start winning some games here. And sometimes you have to take some chances to do that. I love how you broke that down because that's kind of how I feel right now with Jones. You got to start taking some of those tight window chances if if that's all you have. And, you know, yeah. they just you can't you can't be putting together passing games like this and expecting to win anything real. But I have a couple uh, 30,000 foot few questions I want to ask you before we let you go, Mark. And the first one would be this. And I think it's most important. Moving forward, we hope and we expect the Giants will have a new offensive coordinator 
Oh, I'm sorry. Offensive coordinator next season. This Jason Garrett experiment just simply isn't working out. The Giants may find a way to, you know, there's a lot of talk about can the Giants get the seventh wild card spot? I think it's a lot easier said than done, like looking at the schedule for them to get another six wins, which is what it's going to take at the minimum. But let's say it doesn't happen. And they are looking for a new offense coordinator because I think that'll be the first person to go. Garrett, on a scale of one to 10, I want to ask you to start. How well has Garrett's system fit Jones' skill set? And then second, are there any coaches on your short list the Giants could look into to hire? And even if not, what type of system do you think would best fit Jones's skill set? Yeah, in terms of Garrett's system, like I thought it was going to be a much cleaner fit. Like I remember right in at the time that like, you know, Garrett is more rooted in the downfield Coriel stuff. Like I, I thought it was going to be sort of a cleaner fit. And it just it just hasn't quite worked. Like he, he's it, Garrett seemed and you guys talked about the concepts, you know, slant flat stick you know, Omaha double out toss or double slant, whatever you want to call these. And we talked about it in the, in the summer, right. The sort of conservative play calling we, we grafted out, you know, from a numbers basis, the on schedule concepts that they seem to call it last year. It's bled a lot into this year as well. I, I'm, I'm, and again, it might have it's underpinning and foundational reasons being they're worried about protection up front. Okay. So maybe you have to address the offensive line via the draft and free agency, but ultimately, the guy that's playing, calling the plays is going to be the guy that sees his head fall, you know, in the offseason. And that's why there are expectations that Garrett will be the guy that goes. Um, as far as who I would hire, I will maintain that my if I'm an owner for a team with a young quarterback, particularly a young quarterback that, you know, needs to perhaps push the ball downfield a bit more, that needs to perhaps, you know, have that ability to throw against leverage in those moments, Pep Hamilton's my first call. And Hamilton was with the Chargers last year. He was part of that group. Anthony Lynn, Shane Steach, and the offensive coordinator, Pep Hamilton, the quarterback's coach, um, that made Justin Herbert who he is. You know, And you're seeing now a lot of questions about Justin Herbert, right? They have Joe Lombardi. It's more of a West Coast offense. They've really sort of reined Herbert in. And a team that started 5-1 and one is now what? 5-4, five 5-5? And, five and, five? Um, and Herbert has not looked like the Justin Herbert of last season or the Justin Herbert of the early part of this year. I think Pep Hamilton had a huge part in influencing him as the quarterback's coach last year in Los Angeles with the downfield stuff, with the vertical stuff, with attacking in the vertical passing game off of play action. And, you know, I look at Pep Hamilton and I know he's had some ups and downs in his coaching career, but I look at the job he did last year. Yeah, he's with Houston as their passing game coordinator and quarterback's coach, but he was hired thinking he coached Sean Watson and now he's coaching Tyrod Taylor and Davis Mills. I mean, Pep Hamilton's at the top of my list. I mean, are there other guys that I would certainly give a call? Yeah. I mean, Kafka, I, I think he's gotten a lot of attention. DeFilippo has gotten a lot of attention. Um, but I would start with Pep Hamilton. I'm going to keep making that case for Pep Hamilton, whether it's with Justin Fields in Chicago, whether it's with Daniel Jones in New York. But for these young quarterbacks that might be suited for that vertical passing game, I look at Justin Herbert last year and I would think to myself, I want that. And with Daniel Jones, you might be able to get him there. I freaking love that call, Mark. Last year, guys, like when it was clear that the Chargers were going to make it uh, go in a different direction, I was banning the table for them to hire Pep as the head coach. They say, look, you saw what you had. You just you just saw what every other team wants, right? Like when any, any NFL franchise drafts the rookie quarterback, they would they would dream of Justin Herbert's rookie year for their guy. So if it was Shane Steichen, then hire him and make Pep the offensive coordinator. If it was Pep, hire Pep. Like I, I'm going to bang that Pep Hamilton drum as loud as I can this offseason. I think for Jones in particular – given the stuff we've talked about, given the strengths that he should have shown in the downfield passing game, given some of the, you know, the ability to play in the face of pressure at times, that was the huge thing for Justin Herbert, right? Nobody, anybody that was high on Herbert, myself included, I, 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 I I'm such a coward guys. I wrote the, the article over at Matt Waldman's site, the case for Herbert as QB one, but I ultimately didn't get there because I'm such a coward, but nobody, even myself included thought, he was going to be able to handle pressure in the pocket the way he did last year as a rookie. I look at all these things we're talking about with Daniel Jones, some of the stuff we saw from Justin Herbert last year. I think, well, I'm going to get me one of those guys, and I'm going to start with Pep as my first call. And what I love so much about that, and you just alluded to it a little bit in that response, is that he did it, and he did it without a great offensive line. That Chargers offensive yep. line was beat up and really bad last year. And all we hear every day this year is you can't generate a vertical pass game with a bad offensive line. You can't do anything vertical with a bad offensive line. Well, guess what? 
They did it. They did it last yep. year. Pep Hamilton and the Chargers did it last year. And so go to the source. Go to how, how he was able to do it. And so I love that call. And in general, I think that's a great direction. Hopefully they'll be looking at that too. Yeah, I'm a huge Pep Hamilton guy. And yeah, I, I, he shouldn't be down there as the passing game coordinator for, for the Houston Texans. Like, let's get Pep a, a shot at an OC gig. Because I even look at what he did. What, what was it? The AAF, the Washington franchise. He was like the head coach and general yeah. manager. And, and they were playing well. Um, I, I think Pep deserves like an OC slash head coaching gig here in the future. And, you know, I, I think he would be a very good offensive coordinator for Daniel Jones. Bring them to the Big Apple. Bring them to yep. the Big Apple, baby. Let's go. <laughs> so we uh we talk a lot about floor and ceiling for Daniel Jones. So uh, we kind of want to ask you, man, uh, what would be a fair NFL comp at quarterback for Jones as far as ceiling goes? And uh, you can pull quarterbacks from the past, from the present. It doesn't really matter. Give us a fair comp, and what do you think the percentage is that Jones can reach the potential of said player that you're about to name? Man, I mean, fair comp – it might be kind of a Ryan Tannehill type situation where, you know, depending on how people feel about Tannehill, he may be a top 10 quarterback in some minds. Maybe it's more top 14, 13, 12. Obviously some of that I think you're going to have to get the scheme fit right for, because I don't think Tannehill, as much as he sort of was a view to be sort of a spread West coast, quick game guy, he's better suited for under center, you know, vertical concepts, play action stuff, vertical concepts off of play action. And, you know, does that have Derrick Henry help him? Absolutely. But one of the things that the Titans do so well that more teams need to be aware of, and this is particularly key for the Giants, you don't have to have a great run game to be successful on play action. And Jones has been pretty successful on play actions. The numbers sort of support that. But what you really need to do is tie the run game concepts to your play action concepts. You know, if, if you're a heavy under center team in the run game, but then you're trying to show zone looks with shotgun on play action, like defenses aren't going to buy that. But if you're constantly under center in the run game and then you're under center in play action passing game, even if you're not effective running the football, you can be effective on play action. So I think that's a lesson for the Giants who have, you know, we haven't talked about it as much, but they've struggled to run the ball too. Again, offensive line woes. But I think Tannehill is kind of a good comp for where Jones could get to. Uh, in terms of percentage that he gets there, you know, I, I still think it's better than 50-50, you know, maybe 60-40, 65-35. Uh, Cause I still have faith in Jones. I think he's shown you some developmental growth over the years. I think the problem is it hasn't been as quick as we'd like. And I always say, look, you know, three years for a quarterback. And I know with Jones, there are some extenuative circumstances, you know, different offensive coordinators, different coaches and things like that. But we are in year three. We're in the middle of year three now. And incremental growth is nice in say year one and two but you'd like to see it happen at a bit faster rate in years three and four. And, you know, maybe finally getting the, the fit right schematically, maybe getting the offensive right will propel that growth in year four, but the clock is running out on Jones. Decisions are going to be made. And the other thing underlying all of this is if a new general manager comes in, Jones wasn't his call. Now what might work in Jones's favor in terms of getting that fifth year option, things like that guys, the next quarterback class doesn't have any easy answers. I mean, you might like Matt Corral, you might like Malik Willis, you might like Kenny Pickett, and there are reasons to like those guys. But I don't think there's anybody that's coming out that's going to be like, yeah, he's a clear better option for a team, any NFL team, uh, or let's say most NFL teams, because I think there are some teams that would rather one of those guys and who they have right now. But as far as comparing Jones to those guys, I don't think it'd be an easy call you know, uh, to start one of those guys over Daniel Jones week one. So that might buy Jones years four and five to get this figured out, but the clock is ticking. It's so funny, Mark. It's like you read our minds sometimes because we're going to let you get out on this final 30,000 foot view question, which you kind of already answered, but I do want to ask it in, in the way I was intended to just see if there's anything you would add to it or any further context that will give Giants fans a feel for, you know, where they're at and where they're going to be with the quarterback position. And so ask you this, if you were running the Giants, so say you were hired to be the general manager, and and quite frankly, I think you could do a better job than Dave Gettle. No, <laughs> I don't know about that. See, I can't, I just, I can't, I can't I'm just joking. I only did that before the people who think I'm the biggest Gettleman hater, and I just was doing a little <laughs> joke. If I had said that seriously, I would have been flam flam right, flamed right, for right. the rest of my career on here. So it's a joke, guys. We're just making a joke. But anyway, if you were running the Giants on a scale of 1 to 10, 
how likely would you be to use one of those first two round picks? And right now it's looking like with that bear schedule, that could be a top five, top six pick from the bears and the giants. Who knows? They got a decently tough schedule. That could be 11, 10 range. Um, how would you likely be to use it to take a chance on one of these quarterbacks in, and in the turn, you'd be restarting that rookie contract clock. You maybe also get a second round pick and more for Jones. I mean, the Jets were able to get a second and a day three for Darnold. And I think Jones going into this offseason will be viewed higher in my mind, at least, than Darnold was heading into this one. Though I guess some people were looking at it like uh, Darnold had such an unfair shake. Like, let's let's give him a shot. Um, or at least the Panthers were. And then if so, which QB from that 22 class do you believe would be an upgrade to Jones? Yeah, see, I think, you know, Kenny Pickett, Mac. Matt Corral, Malik Willis, maybe Sam Howell. Although there, guys, there are times where Sam Howell looks more like fullback one to, than QB one to me. <laughs> um, he, he's gotten really good, Sam Howell, this year running the football. I think what's interesting about Howell is recency bias in a sense because that open night game against Virginia Tech where he struggled, like he's gotten better since then. But I think people saw that and just sort of like wrote them off. They're like, look, we're done. You know, it's like, you know, throwing the toys away in Toy Story. I'm done with you. I don't want to play with you anymore. That's sometimes what we do with quarterbacks. And then we circle back with them. Um, you know, Carson Strawn's interesting, uh, the Nevada kid, but he he really can't move. The medicals are going to be huge with him. Like the knee injury. I did a video on him. Um, and he was trying to scramble on a fourth and four. And it was like, he, he just couldn't get there. Um but I do think he has incredible arm talent. Um, so, you know, these guys, they're intriguing, but you're going to have to get the fit right. You're going to have to be extremely patient with them. I look at these guys and like, would I start Matt Corral week one? Maybe. I'm not so sure I'd go that far. Would I start Kenny Pickett week one? Maybe, but I don't know. I think the other guys are more developmental types already. Um, and the interesting thing about this quarterback class is unlike last year's where it was like, yeah, you get five guys that you knew were going to be first rounders. You know, you might have these guys graded say top five overall. You might have top five grades on them as a team. I think if you start talking to NFL organizations, I'm, I'm sure they're going to be telling me this, this spring. Yeah. Our QB one is graded 25 on our board overall. Our QB one is graded 23 or 28. So if you're talking about using, I'm looking at tankathon right now a sixth overall pick on one of these guys and pass it up on areas of need, say offensive line. Um, you're going to pass on the Alabama kid, the Neil, um, to take one of these quarterbacks, make it in a reach already, let alone trying to get the developmental and valuation parts right. I don't know about that. And so from where I sit, as much as I'm a quarterback guy, as much as I walk into every draft believing that there should be 32 first round quarterbacks because I love quarterbacks and I'm part of the quarterback union. And if I don't say those nice things, they'll, they'll cut me out of the union. <laughs> I don't know if I'm drafting one of those guys at six or at eight with the other needs you can address. You're talking about passing on potential star players at positions of need for a quarterback when you've kind of got a guy that, you know, you're still not sure about, but maybe in the right environment, maybe you just help the environment rather than resetting the quarterback clock again. So as much as I'd love to say, look, yeah, Malik Willis, Carson Strawn, Matt Corral, Kenny Pickett, they're all surefire top five guys draft one of those guys at six or at five or at eight or wherever you end up. I'm not, I'm not going to go there right now. And I don't think I'd get there with these guys. So this might be a situation where you kick the quarterback decision down the road. You try to help Daniel Jones one more year and you say, okay, well maybe we'll get it figured out. And then you hope maybe he does, or then, yeah, you have to bite the bullet and re restart, reset that quarterback clock down the road. And it's interesting, Mark, because I won't actually get your take on this, Nick, and then we'll wrap up uh, and we'll let Mark go. But I feel like I'm not part of the quarterback union. I don't have the credentials for it, but I also am a strong believer that you should, and I've, I've made this clear on multiple podcasts through the years. I'm more open to and aggressive in addressing the quarterback position than most. Most people feel, okay, you got your rookie quarterback after one or two years, you can't draft it on. I, I don't feel that way. I feel you should just keep adding talent to that position because ultimately quarterbacks are the difference makers in this league. It's the truest thing ever. Just look across the league at the teams that are consistently making the championship games and the Super Bowls. It's a team with the best quarterback. There are outlier years, Dilfer in 2000, the Payton year, whatever with Denver his last year. Those are just outliers. Those happen once every 10 or 15 years. You didn't, shouldn't be going for outliers. So 
at this stage, I am in that mind, but I'm with you right now. As I look at this class, I don't really like anything in this class. Like the only thing that intrigues me a little bit is if you put Malik Willis on a roster and you have some really fun, like new offense you design that works really well. The team practices it well. You could do some interesting things on offense using his legs, like some sort of like a Lamar Jackson type offense. But even then you need an offensive line to be able to do that. And the giants are nowhere near that. So at this stage, I'm in that camp as well. I'm curious your take Nick, and then we'll let, then we'll let Mark wrap up, tell everyone where they can find his work. I agree with both of you. It has to be the right quarterback prospect. I like where your your train of thought is there, Dan, but it just has to be the right one because if it's not, you're just going to end up being like the 2011 quarterback class where Jake Locker is selected in the top 10 and Christian Ponder is selected in the top 15 and all of these quarterbacks are being drafted over, you know, star type of defensive talent like J.J. Watt. So like I'm... I'm I'm much more about building the environment if there is not somebody that you actually truly believe in. Yeah, without yeah, a doubt. Yeah. All right, Mark. I mean, I, I think that's I think that's I think you guys are on the right train of thought. All right. You thank you, Mark, so much for joining us. As yep. always, it was awesome. We love having you on. You broke down this position extremely well. You broke down Jones. I think people are going to love this one. So tell everyone where they can find your work if they want to find more quarterback analysis. And I know you sometimes do work on Jones as well. Yeah, um, easiest ways on Twitter at Mark Schofield, but USA Today's Touchdown Wire, um, Matt Waldman's RSP Quick Game Podcast. I do some stuff at Big Blue View, Blue Green Nation, Pat's Pulpit, Blogging the Boys. Um, I'm breaking down the quarterbacks for those teams. I do a weekly video on Prescott, a weekly video on Jones for those sites. Um, but the easiest way is on Twitter at Mark Schofield. Awesome. Thanks again, Mark, so much for joining us. Well, thanks, guys. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.